good evening, everyone, and thank you, Trevor. Uh, if you have a Bible, if you'd like to turn to Revelation chapter 4, uh, it's page 1,236 in the, the Red Pew Bibles. As Trevor said, we're, we're going to be looking and thinking about worship, the spiritual discipline of worship, and worship is something we have been doing tonight, or, or have we? Uh, and, and I'll come back to that. But last Sunday morning and evening, I introduced our new series on spiritual disciplines, which we've called Unforced Rhythms. And just as a matter of interest, or not as a matter of interest, just to let you know, uh, last week we uh, recommended a book that we're, we're offering as to accompany this series. We sold out of those, but I think there are more coming in a couple of weeks, so I'm sorry about that. But those who, who didn't get and are waiting for those, they will come. Journals, we've also made available. Mark designed some great journals. There's a number of them here tonight. We talked about journaling last week, but we want to make journals available for people if you would like to use those during this series, if, if nothing else and they are available tonight. I think they, they, they cost a fiver. But last Sunday, I, I did a, a general intro. It was a kind of big picture, broad brushstrokes kind of thing. But tonight, we're going to start getting specific. Uh, we're going to start kind of naming and exploring individual disciplines. And, and the first is worship. Now, the question is, is that because worship is the most important spiritual discipline? Or should we give priority to it above all the others? I don't know. Uh, here's the list that I, I showed you last week of the spiritual disciplines we are going to look at. Are, are they ranked in order? I don't think so. But before we, uh, we do get specific, I want to go back to the reason why. Why spiritual disciplines? Because unless we keep the why front and central, unless the purpose for doing spiritual disciplines is in sharp focus, then some of the dangers and some of the pitfalls with spiritual disciplines may trip us up or, or get in the way. So we may start doing them, and people have talked to me about this, we may start doing them for all the wrong reasons. And, and you can do them for all the wrong reasons. You can do them to earn God's favor, to earn God's approval. We can do them to just tick a box and say, well, we've done that, we're doing these things. We can do them to impress others. We can even do them out of a sense of a kind of sense of superstition. You know, if, if I don't read my Bible, if I don't have a quiet time today, then something bad's going to happen. Uh, and people do, we do kind of things. So last week we identified four key reasons just to make sure we keep the purpose front and central. So can anybody remember what the four reasons for spiritual disciplines that we named last week were? Just give me one even, please. Just make me feel better. <laughs> Jesus did them. There's one. Uh, sorry? They're in the Bible. Jesus did them. Those are kind of the same thing, but it's okay. So there's still three others to go for. <laughs> Intimacy, yeah. Godliness, yeah. And one more. To guard our hearts. Brilliant. Bless you. Uh, so godliness, to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. That, that's... Paul's advice to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 7, or in another translation, train yourself to be godly. Or if you use the King James Version, exercise thyself unto godliness. So we do spiritual disciplines for the purpose of being godly, being holy, being more like Jesus. And we said last week that ultimately the reason for this series is not to see more people doing more spiritual disciplines. The reason for this series is to see more people becoming more like Jesus. And that's really important to say right at the outset. And that second reason, intimacy. Spiritual disciplines nurture our relationship with God. 
And thirdly, Jesus did them the most perfect person who ever lived, the Son of God, God incarnate. He did them. And then spiritual disciplines are great heart protectors. And so as we come to look at worship as a spiritual discipline, we do it, we consider doing it, we, we practice doing it. Why? For the purpose of godliness, intimacy, because Jesus did it and because it guards our hearts. Now, just before we, we read from God's Word, let me make a really brief comment about something that maybe a few people are, are, are thinking about, wondering about. Uh, is worship not a lifestyle as opposed to a spiritual discipline? Discuss. Okay? But think about that for a minute. Is, is worship not a lifestyle as opposed to a spiritual discipline? Well, worship is a lifestyle. Romans 12, 1 makes that point. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice because this is what? Somebody tell me. This is true and proper worship. So yes, worship is a lifestyle, but it's also a spiritual discipline. Here's why. Because and if you want to, we kind of reason why it's a spiritual discipline, because it is an ordered way of acting and living that sets us before God so that he can transform us. Now, I see lots of you scribbling, hopefully in your journals, but let me just throw that out again, okay? It is a spiritual discipline because it is an ordered way of acting and living that sets us before God so that he can transform us. So in other words, it's an intentional practice, an intentional practice, and that's what we're going to be dealing with tonight, the intentional practice of worship, although the whole idea of it is a lifestyle and a discipline, they they overlap. Okay, please stand with me for the public reading of God's Word. Revelation 4, page 1236. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne seven lamps were blazing. There are the, these are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had the face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God. You're worthy to receive glory. You're worthy to receive honor. You're worthy to receive power for you created all things and by your will, they were created and have their being. Grab a seat. Let me also just very quickly read a verse from John 4, a verse that Trevor has already referred to in part. But the hour is coming, said Jesus, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people 
to worship him. Let me, let me give you, or let me state two main points. These, these are two key thoughts that are going to underpin, they're going to inform more or less everything else that I'm going to say and share tonight, and it's this. God is worthy of worship. I mean, Trevor has already said that. He prayed that earlier. God is worthy of worship. And secondly, God is actively seeking worshipers, true worshipers. And so if we are going to practice this discipline, then we need to allow these two thoughts, these two reasons to impact and influence our decision to practice this discipline. And to kind of, if you like, these need to be the reasons that shape our training schedule when it comes to this discipline. In the Apostle John's glimpse or vision of heaven, he discovers a very active place. Now, I'm not going to unpack all of Revelation 4, but as John catches a vision of heaven, he, he, he discovers a really active place, but the central activity is worship. Worship is the heartbeat of heaven. Elders, creatures, angels are literally doing it, getting caught up in it 24-7. Day and night they worship, it says, verse, two, verse 8. It's non-stop, ceaseless worship. And the reason comes across loud and clear, not only in this chapter, but also in the next chapter and in many others. And the reason is this. God is worthy. God is worthy. And, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but the English word worship is derived, or it comes from an old English word meaning worth ship. And, and so in very simple terms, worship means to proclaim or to give worth to something that we consider precious or valuable. That's what it means. Christian worship is therefore an act of affirming God's worth. It's a declaration of God's worth. That is what Christian worship is. And heaven is doing this round the clock. You are worthy. You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. God deserves our worship. And therefore, we must do it. We must do it. And we should do it now because it's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. We were created to worship. But worship isn't just a kind of church thing. It's a human thing. It's not just a church. It's a human thing. We are all created to worship something. But as Jesus made clear, whenever the devil came to Jesus and tried to get him to redirect his worship, here's what Jesus said. You must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And God and God alone is worthy of our ultimate worship. And other things will vie for our worship. There's no doubt about that. Other things will compete for our affection, but only God is truly worthy. And therefore, picking up the words of the psalmist, come, he says, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. He is worthy. He alone is worthy. We've been created to worship. We will all worship something but Christian worship, true worship, is the worship of the one who is worthy of it. And the reason God is worthy of worship, the reason he deserves all our worship here tonight, is because of who he is and because of what he has done. And, and as we listen to the worship of heaven here in Revelation 4, we discover and we're reminded of God's character, which then is meant to inspire and fuel our worship. And it ensures, here's the thing, it ensures that we worship 
in truth. You see, true worshipers, according to Jesus, as he had that conversation with that woman by the well, true worshipers, according to Jesus, worship in truth. In other words, in light of the truth of who God is, shaped by the truth of God's character as it's revealed in Scripture. That's what it means to worship in truth, in light, in reality of the truth of who God is. And what we find in Revelation 4 is that God is holy, God's powerful, God's eternal, God is our creator, and here's why he's worthy of our worship. Here's why we must worship him. Here's why the spiritual discipline must be part of our training schedule. And it's this recognition and this understanding that causes us to worship, that stimulates our worship. It ensures that our worship remains God-focused and God-centered. Forms of worship, styles of worship are important, yes, but they only facilitate and, and enable us to worship. But styles and forms and types of worship must never take over eclipse or distract, distract us from the object of our worship. And so I'm not going to talk tonight about forms of worship and styles of worship. I may touch on it a little bit. But none of those things should distract. They're secondary. They're not irrelevant, but they're secondary. But they must never take over eclipse or distract us from the object of our worship, which is God who is worthy because he's holy, because he's powerful, because he's eternal, because he is our creator. And so I just want to take a few moments very briefly now at this stage to reflect on the focus of heaven's worship. To reflect on these four truths. Incidentally, if you are reading the book, if you did get a copy of the book last week and, and you have flicked to the chapter in Donald Whitney's book about worship, here, here's his simple definition. Worship is focusing on and responding to God. And that's what's happening in Revelation 4. That's what's happening in heaven. That's what we should be doing now. Worship is focusing on and responding to God. And so what does that, what does that look like in heaven? God is holy. Three times. Three times these living creatures repeat this characteristic of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It's exactly like Isaiah. Whenever he gets a glimpse of the, the enthroned, highly exalted Lord, years and years before John did, his reaction, his response is identical. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God is holy. He is totally alone in his perfection. No one else and nothing else can be compared to God. He's got no rivals, no competition. God is uniquely different. He's other than, he's apart from. God is majestic in holiness as Moses and Miriam sang. And when we get that, when we realize that, when we declare that, we will worship in truth. When we get that, when we declare that, that God is holy. There is no one like him, nothing like him. Totally unique other than, apart from, then we will worship in truth. Secondly, God's powerful, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, God of limitless ability, God who is more than able in his hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand him. God of infinite power and therefore God, because you are powerful, you are worthy of our worship and all worship. God's eternal, who was and is and is to come. God of no beginning, as we understand it, no end, from everlasting to everlasting. You are God, declares the psalmist. The Bible never tries to prove God's existence. 
or explain where he came from. It merely starts in the beginning, God, uncreated, unoriginated, self-existent, eternal. And therefore, again, what does this mean? He's worthy of our worship. Why? Because this is who he is. And then not only holy, powerful, and eternal, but also worthy because he's our creator. Verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created, have there been. We worship and we must worship because he is the creator of life. He's the source. And apart from God's creativity, nothing and none of us would be here. And notice God wasn't forced to create. He didn't have to create, but by his will, all things were created and have there being God chose to create. God is worthy. Worthy of all worship for these reasons. And therefore we must, we, we simply must practice this spiritual discipline. And unless we come at it from that place, unless we realize that, then it will just be a list on a, on, or a thing on a list of things that we maybe should do or must do. No. We do it because God is worthy. But let's dig a little bit deeper into the second main point of this discipline, which is that God is actively seeking worshipers. True worshipers, and, and Jesus' definition of true worshipers, say, those who worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I've already mentioned a key part of the in-truth aspect of worship. It means, it involves worshiping God as he's revealed in Scripture. That's what it means to worship in truth, or a key part of it. But what about the in-spirit dimension? Well, a key meaning of this is, not the only, but a key meaning of this is, and this is from the inside out, from the inside. You see, true worship has got to come from within. It's got, if it's going to be genuine, if it's going to be authentic, it's got to come from within. And another way of saying this is our heart has got to be in it. Our heart has got to be in it. And Jesus touched on this in Matthew 15 whenever he quoted something Isaiah prophesied or said about people who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from them, from him. And then he goes on to say, they worship me in vain. You see, you, you can clearly say and sing all the right words. You can verbally express worship. Jesus says this in, in quote like that. You can worship. You can verbally express worship. But you see, if the heart isn't in it, if it doesn't come from within, if it's not in spirit, if it's not in the right spirit, then it's futile, it's ineffective, and it's useless. Those are strong words. Our true worship must come from the heart, which is why I said earlier, worship is something we've already been doing tonight, or have we? Because it is possible for me. It is possible for me to honor God with my lips. It is possible for me to come to a worship service. It is possible for me to sing all the songs and yet not engage from the inside out. Not worship from the heart. Not worship in spirit. And, they're not, and therefore not be the kind of worshiper that the Father seeks. The spiritual discipline of worship requires wholehearted worship. I will worship with all of my heart is how we're going to close this service. I will worship with all of my heart. Or, or as the psalmist declared, and we kind of use part of this in the, the second song, we sang, bless the Lord, O my soul, 
And then what does it say after that? And what? All that is within me. It's got to come from the inside out. All that is within me. Bless his holy name. And so we worship, we practice this discipline. One, because God is worthy. And secondly, because God is seeking worshipers. True worshipers. But let me move on and mention two more important aspects of this discipline. The first is we worship privately and we worship publicly. We do it on our own and we do it with others. We meet with God alone in worship as Jesus did. We join with others in corporate worship as Jesus did each Sabbath according to Luke 4, 16. And it's never a case of either or. It's always both and. This is so important. Matthew Henry, many familiar with with his uh, comedies. Matthew Henry said that public worship will not excuse us from private worship. Public worship will not excuse us from private, but the flip is true as well. Private worship does not excuse us from public worship. We need both. It is right and good to worship God by ourselves on a regular basis, and it is absolutely right and good to meet with others like this and worship together. Both are biblical. Both are essential. So we worship. We practice this discipline privately. We practice it publicly. The second important aspect is that we worship expressively. It should involve expression. Some of you are smiling at me already. I think, I think you are. I can never see through those glasses. They're only for reading. It should involve expression, both verbal and, 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 and I know and I reckon this is where a few of us start feeling a little nervous and outside our comfort zones, but our worship should be expressive verbally and physically. We must articulate our worship in spoken word, yes, in sung lyrics, yes, in prayers of adoration, yes, in declarations of praise, absolutely. All of those verbal expressions of worship are found and encouraged in Scripture as part and parcel of authentic worship. They are. But worship is also physically expressive. Now, I referred earlier to forms and styles and types of worship and said I wasn't really going to talk about those. I said they're secondary, although they're not irrelevant, but they're secondary. But I'm not going to talk about those now. Because physically expressive worship is not about form, it's not about style, it's about posture before God. And that is the critical thing. That's what biblically expressive worship is about. Not form, not style, it's about posture before God. You see, as heaven worships, as the 24 elders in Revelation 4 declare that God is worthy, what happens to them? they fall down and find themselves prostrate and face down before God. In the New Testament, the Greek term most often translated worship is this, which literally means what does it mean, those of you who know? It means to prostrate yourself before another in reverence. It turns up 60 times apparently in the biblical text. And as you read the Old Testament, you see that time and time again, worship involved and it included a physical expression. There was often a change, sometimes a dramatic change, in posture that expressed reverence, that expressed respect, that expressed admiration. And so, for example, let me give you these. In Genesis 24, Adam's servant, it says, bow down and worship the Lord. In Exodus 12, when the Israelites heard about the Passover sacrifice, what was their response? It says, then the people bowed down. And worship. In Exodus 34, that we read that Moses bowed to the ground at once and worship. 
In 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat bowed his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshiped before the Lord. In Nehemiah 8, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And what happened? All the people responded by lifting their hands and shouting, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed to the ground and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground, it says. And in Psalm 95 that I quoted earlier, we are told, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. And we could go on and I could quote example after example, but it seems that way back then in the Old Testament, plus it appears that right now in heaven, that as God is worshiped, that whenever God is recognized for who he is, holy, powerful, eternal, the creator, whenever he is recognized as who he is, there is a place for, there is a need to, there is a time to express our worship physically as we kneel, as we bow, as we lie prostrate before a holy, powerful, eternal creator God. Worship is and worship should be appropriately physical. Why? Because posture matters. Not about form, not about style. That's why there's so many worship wars. It's not about that. It's about posture. And so I want to suggest that as you practice the spiritual discipline of worship, whether privately, and maybe this is where it's going to be, privately or publicly, that you learn to express your worship, not just verbally, but also at times physically. As I finish, I want to say something about preparation for worship. It was really interesting tonight that Trevor got us to do that, uh, those of you who were in, uh, Trevor got us to, to just take a couple of minutes or a minute of just silent preparation before we worship. And so I just want to say a, a couple of things as a finish about preparation for worship, whether it's personal worship or whether it's corporate worship, whether it's done privately or publicly. R Richard Foster, in his classic book, Celebration of Discipline, and I'm sure many of you have read that book. It's one, it's one of the, the go-to books on spiritual disciplines. But in that book, he talks about the need to cultivate holy expectancy in preparing to worship. And I love that thought. Absolutely love it. And he comments on how this was a striking feature of worship in the Bible. You see, whenever people approached God, whenever they gathered, they gathered, they came together with a sense of expectancy. They knew that they were coming into the awful, glorious, gracious presence of the living God. And so they came with anticipation, knowing to you know something. God is here. God is present. There's something dynamically different about what we are coming here to do. It's not a social club. This is just not a wee meeting. This is us coming into the presence. I know we're never out of God's presence, but this is us actively, intentionally coming in and recognizing here we are gathered together in the presence of a holy, powerful, eternal creator God. And so we come expectantly. Or do we? Or do we? And then Foster goes on to talk about cultivating holy dependency as you come to worship, meaning we are utterly and completely dependent upon God for anything significant that may happen when we gather. We're utterly dependent on that sense of God's presence that Trevor referred to earlier. That's not something we can manufacture. We can try lead people. We can try use particular forms, whether styles of music or whatever. It's not something we can manufacture. Ultimately, we come here dependent on God, unless you're here. 
unless we come expecting you to be here, anticipating you're dependent on you being here, then what's this all about? And I think those are two great ways to prepare for and approach worship, whether on our own or with others. The fact we show up is brilliant. But if we showed up with holy expectancy and holy dependency, it may profoundly impact our experience when we're here. Another important way to prepare for worship is via confession. Confession is a discipline we're going to look at as part of this series, but you know unconfessed sin has a habit and an ability to disrupt our worship. It will. Sin hinders us. Unconfessed sin hinders us in the presence of a holy God. The psalmist said, If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I find that chilling thought. If I just come, if I just rush in, if I don't confess the sin that's in my heart, and there is sin in my heart, I don't confess that. Does God listen to my worship? Does he hear it? And another important way, final way to prepare is sometimes we need to be prepared to offer a sacrifice of worship. Do you know there's many times whenever we just don't feel like it? Sure we don't. For all kinds of reasons, we just don't feel like worshiping. We don't feel like worshiping because of what is going on at the moment, the circumstances that we're dealing with, what we're going through, what's in our minds, what's distracting us, what's occupying our thinking. We just don't feel like it. We don't feel like it because we actually come with a low sense of expectation. Maybe previous experience. Maybe there's far too many other great options available. So good the Raider Cup finished early today. <laughs> and so sometimes, you know, we need to be prepared to sacrifice, to make a sacrifice, to offer a sacrifice. We sometimes need to be prepared to sacrifice, to just do it anyway, to go anyway. So preparation is important. Okay, need to finish. Here, here's the wrap-up. Worship is a spiritual discipline because it is an ordered way of acting and living that sets us before God so that he can transform us. Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. We worship, we set ourselves before God so that God can transform us. And that ordered way of acting and living means focusing on, picking up the Whitney definition, means focusing on and responding to God. And we do that, why? Because God is worthy and God is seeking worshipers, true worshipers. We worship privately, we worship publicly, we worship expressively, and we should be prepared to worship. Worship is the heartbeat of heaven. It's an unforced rhythm. May we practice it well in advance. We're going to stand together and we are going to sing that song, I will worship with all of my heart. And so I invite you to stand. I invite you to do that, to worship with all of your heart, to worship in spirit as well as in truth tonight. Let's do that together.